0: Hi, welcome to Europe Chats. We are in June 2023. In the second half of this year, the European Union will need to take important decisions on the next steps in the process of its enlargement. Ukraine and Moldova are making big efforts to qualify for the opening of accession negotiations. Citizens of Georgia have been standing up for the country's European future, hoping for Georgia to move from a potential candidate to candidate status. In the Western Balkans, accession negotiations are ongoing with four countries, but progress is mixed. I will have the privilege to discuss these topics today with Professor Frank Schimelfenig, a leading European expert on enlargement, democratisation and on different ways in which different countries can participate in European integration. Frank is a professor at ETH Zürich and a leading protagonist of many European research projects. His most recent co-authored book on integration and differentiation in the European Union was published just in 2022. Hello, Frank. Hello, Marian. Should the EU open accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova already this year?
1: Yes, I think it should. And it should do so for mainly two reasons. One is it would be a Signal of the credible commitment of the European Union to the enlargement process. Uh, The decision that was taken last year to uh, give the association trio a membership perspective and to grant Ukraine and Moldova candidate status, um, that was an important uh, change in the EU's strategy. But candidate status is more or less a symbolic gesture. Uh, now, opening accession negotiations would show that uh, the European Union is really committed to the process. It also say, adds say, institutional weight behind this decision. So it would uh, basically start the concrete negotiations on joining it would uh, strengthen uh, also uh, the support uh, that uh, ukraine and moldova and maybe others would receive in the process it would basically demonstrate yeah that the eu is serious and that it get, gets its uh, institutional machinery going on this on this issue at the same time i think it's important that accession negotiations are basically open-ended and flexible So they give the European Union the opportunity to observe the candidates, um, how they behave, how they comply with the conditions, uh, how also democracy develops in these countries. And so it preserves also also the conditionality of the process. It's not a foregone conclusion, uh, but it shows uh, the commitment of the European Union.
0: Well, speaking about conditionality and reversibility of the process, the European Union actually updated its methodology in 2020, mainly to integrate uh, Western Balkans, uh, to, to reinvigorate the accession process um, of, the, of them. Is a further reform of the enlargement uh, actually foreseen or necessary in order to integrate Ukraine?
1: Well, I think um, it's a Im- it's important to say that this has been uh, one reform of the enlargement strategy in a, in a long series of reforms uh, since the mid-2000s. And it's also important to understand that most of these reforms have not really gained traction for the enlargement process. So I think the say the uh, specific methodology of the enlargement strategy is really a secondary concern. Um, so why hasn't it gained traction before because I think the political fundamentals weren't weren't right. Um, so uh, since the mid-2000s, we've observed widespread enlargement fatigue, public opinion turned away from the enlargement process. Um, also, there wasn't uh, a general commitment of the member states to the process who thought that... Yeah, maybe the EU had already gone gone too far in in, in enlargement. Uh, rather than a um, say common strategic vision, we've seen all kinds of bilateral conflicts, um, Im- impeding the process. And um, so whatever the EU tinkered with in the enlargement strategy yeah, didn't really matter much if the political fundamentals are not right now this has this has changed um so now um we um clearly have um a strong wave of solidarity with with Ukraine also with with Moldova um there's a perception of a, of a of a common threat so that has to some extent signed, s- sidelined this enlargement fatigue it has also um, helped uh, to overcome these bilateral issues yeah, that some of the old member states have with the with the candidates. So I think this uh, this has really gotten the uh, political fundamentals right.
0: Frank, you often mentioned that EU needs to be credible in its offer um, mm. of future um, membership uh, in order for the enlargement strategy to be a successful policy tool. Um, but can the EU really be credible? Um, because it has actually officially inserted in the Copenhagen criteria a reference to the so-called absorption capacity. Um, what does absorption capacity actually mean? Is it an objective criterion? Is it measurable? Is it um, actually maybe a political statement, an excuse that uh, potentially can be easily abused by populists?
1: Yes, sure. But uh, f- first of all, I want to say that there's no opposition between absorption capacity and credibility. I think we need to understand for the enlargement process to be credible, uh, there needs to be the perception among the member states and among uh, citizens in the member states that the EU is actually able to handle the enlargement process and that it has the capacity to successfully integrate new member states. If that perception is not there there will not be public support and political support for the enlargement process now you are right uh, the, the term absorption capacity um, that is a political and ill-defined term and it has been been used yeah, by um, all kinds of political actors in their way i mean we we know that kind of use of, of absorption capacity from domestic debates on immigration as well yeah where it's also not clear okay when when is the boat full or when 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 is it not so i think um uh it's an it's an important concern but we need to let's say uh, translate it into some some kind of m- measurable and handable quantities and i think it it has three major dimensions one is the de- the decision making capacity of the european union there's the concern that more member states might paralyze decision making, uh, which is a valid concern because more member states add more so-called veto points yeah, in the decision making process, especially when you admit countries that have, say, outlier preferences in comparison uh, with the existing membership. Um, the second concern is, is the fiscal capacity. Of the European Union, um, because more member states will um, make demand on the on the eu on the eu budget, and that 's especially true uh, if the eu adds say comparatively poor comparatively agricultural member states because that are the the biggest items in the uh, budget and um, that will definitely raise issues of capacity because it would either require that uh, the rich member states are ready to in, to increase the budget or that the current main beneficiaries are willing to share yeah, what they get with the with the new member states that has been an issue in eastern enlargement as uh, well and um, that will require um uh, some um decisions um and then there's the issue the issue of social cohesion yeah i mean if uh if as will be the case um uh, the addition of new member states will add societies yeah that are um very different um, with regard to s- socio economic conditions from the from the current members m- member states that will undermine the social cohesion of the entire union that will create migration. Pressures will raise issues of identity and, and I think all of this needs to be needs to be taken very seriously.
0: Is the EU ready to tackle these three challenges that you outlined? Also, how will the EU, in your opinion, need to reform its decision making uh in order to accommodate, let's say, a union of thirty-six?
1: Yeah, I mean is it is it ready now? Uh no. Does it have the instruments? Yes. Um so of of course one could say, okay, if um if the eu lacks the capacity to change its decision making procedures and to say prop up its fiscal capacity um then it then it should do so yeah it should invest but i think that is not what will what is likely to happen because of the um uh, conflicts within the membership about all of these issues but it it has an, an instrument and this instrument is differentiated into or what is now also uh, termed staged accession or gradual ac- accession. So, I think there's a there's a clear f- formula which is not new, which we've seen in earlier enlargements as well. Um, which is, let's say, the um, the more heterogeneous the EU becomes as a result of an enlargement, the more it, let's say, um, uses differentiated integration to admit. New member states that means in in those areas uh, where there are uh, the most pronounced differences between old and new member states, um, there is a let's say temporary exclusion of the of the new member states uh, from uh, full membership, and that mitigates yeah, uh, uh, some of the pressures of in, of enlargement because it means that at least for for some time uh, the new member states will not fully participate in the policies of the EU, so the, the full costs will not come, come to bear, and that will uh, make it easier for the old member states to, ad- to admit the new ones.
0: Well, speaking about the staged integration, the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, recently spoke in Bratislava, and she she talked about stepping up support for the Western Balkans um, by offering them gradual integration into the single market and an increased um, pre-accession funding. What do you make out of this increased ambition?
1: Um, yes, I think that's um, the right way to go. I think it's it's almost necessary. Yeah. Um, uh, to proceed in that in that way, and it, I think it actually adds to the credibility of the process. Um, uh, so it does not overburden the old member states in integrating the new ones in having to to shift massive uh, budget transfers to the to the new member states. Um, so it will be an easier sell also to domestic constituencies in the in the old member states. At the same time, they say these these partial intermediate rewards will also um, help the candidates in making these reforms because there are intermediate benefits. I think one of the issues in the recent enlargement process was that everyone knew, okay, uh, these are comparatively weak candidates uh, as as compared to earlier candidates, so it will be a long process. But the benefits, which are high, uh, they will all come only at the end of the entire process. And for policymakers that face elections, yeah, that have a time horizon of let, I don't know four, or six years, uh, say selling hard policy reforms um, in the in the country, for which the benefits only may come in 20 years or so. That's a that's a hard sell, and that undermines the credibility of the. Process so I think um, it is it is it is clear that uh, if and when enlargement comes it will be differentiated it will be more differentiated than it already had been in the eastern enlargement case because the EU is facing um, say um, uh, poorer less developed uh, candidates than it than it had before and I think the U- the case of U- Ukraine is uh, particularly Im- important because it's a it's a big country and it's an agricultural powerhouse and integrating ukraine uh, as it is now for instance in the common agricultural policy would basically over overburden this policy we already see the strains now yeah that um, um many of the uh, say eastern european member states who are generally in strong support of ukraine face uh, opposition by their farmers uh, and uh, have had to restrict yeah, the uh, free import of Ukrainian a- agricultural goods for this reason. This is, um, this is foreshadowing the kind of conflicts that we will face as the enlargement or, or the admission uh, process moves on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Speaking of differentiation, what are the costs of enlargement and the cost of non-enlargement? What will happen if the EU stopped enlarging?
1: Well, I, I think we need to understand that enlargement has never been let's say this um this kind of uh material cost benefit uh, calculation policy if it if it had only been about let's say the um tangible ma- material economic financial costs and benefits i think the eu would be a lot smaller than it than it is today
0: but, but i meant more generally also in terms of security
1: in terms of uh... I think it has always been, uh, say, part of the historical mission of the European Union to unite the continent, to um, integrate uh, countries that were willing, that uh, were willing to introduce democratic reforms, uh, to share the uh, uh, values and fundamental norms of the of, of the European Union, and let's say the the specific costs and benefits. These were secondary issues that you could deal with, uh, for instance, through differentiation. Um, So um, I think the costs of non-enlargement, yeah, it would be uh, increased in stability uh, at the the external borders of the European Union. Uh, We always observe that the uh, they say the outer member states of the EU, they are usually more interested in enlargement than the inner member states because they want to have, they don't like to have ex- external borders of the European Union. But again, we should not, um, we should not create any illusions here. Uh, when you enlarge, you just move the external borders of the European Union and you often move them into areas that are even more un- unstable than the current ones yeah so i think um it is a it's a bit difficult to speak of the of the costs of non non-enlargement and uh, it's would also be be wrong to downplay uh, the actual costs of enlargement but it's it's important to understand that basically this is um a policy that Derives uh, from, say, the, the, the fundamental values and norms of the European Union. It's it's a it's it's a, it's it's part of the core of the European project. And only when there is consensus that um, yeah, this is part of the historical mission, will it will it move uh, forward. And then it's a political decision. And I think the uh, specific costs and benefits uh, play a secondary role.
0: Well, when the European Communities were created in the 1950s. Um, they accounted for just below 6% of the world's population. Now, with the 27 new member states, they, we still, the EU still accounts for, uh, just under 6% of the world's population. Now, I know that population is just one factor, but could we say that, uh, the enlargement is a
1: necessity if the, if the EU actually wants to remain relevant in the world? Um, Yes, but I think that also depends on what kind of countries uh, the EU integrates. Um, I think if we talked about, uh, let's say, uh, Swiss membership or Norwegian accession or in some, at some point of the future also about the reintegration of the UK in, into the European Union, I think these would be... Um, Additions that would actually increase the economic weight and the power of the European Union. Uh, Those countries that are now uh, candidates for membership, um, at least for uh, some time, I think they will rather be an economic burden on the European Union. Um, That might might change um, as as these uh, countries develop long term. But Im- Im- immediately, it's, it's more of an obligation of the European Union to preserve peace, bring order, help these countries stabilize and democratize yeah, uh, rather than increasing the power or the economic weight of the yes, European Union.
0: exactly. And the question is, does the EU still want to? Uh, be a transformative power i mean does it want to play a similar role for ca- current candidate countries as it played in between the 1970s and around 10 years ago for the candidate countries and new member states
1: yes um, i think that hasn't that hasn't changed we've seen a slight shift in the prioritization yeah you know? so this say the the main strategy before was okay uh these countries have to reform, they have to democratize democratize they have to change their rules in line with those of the european Union, and when they've done that to a certain extent, then we will offer membership and then we will give them candidate status and when they do even more, we will start the accession negotiations. I think now in this in, in the in the new geopolitical context the eu hasn't given up on its conditions, but it has said, okay um, we will start the process uh, at a level of compliance with our rules that are lower than than it was before. And we try to start the um, accession process when the countries are maybe less ready uh, than in earlier enlargement rounds. But we hope that um, starting the accession process now will actually speed up the reform Process, but we don't see that the um, European Union um, has given up this transformative um, strategy, and and I think it shouldn't. It also cannot. Yeah, I mean, if you if if a country wants to be a full member state, this only works if it shares uh, the EU's um, liberal democratic values and if it um, abides by basic institutional. Um, settings like the independence of the, of the judiciary, the rule of law. This is, it, it wouldn't be the European Union if uh, it, 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 it did not follow those rules. Again, we can say the more transformation happens, the less the EU needs differentiation. And the less countries transform on the way to membership, uh, the more the membership will be differentiated. Again, I think uh, this uh, differentiated accession or staged accession is a way um, to take into account uh, the level of transformation that the candidates have actually gone through.
0: But also, if I understand correctly, the, the state of the union itself, right? So the differentiation is not only about the candidate countries, it's also about the EU itself, You know, its own decision-making, uh, its own... Uh, economic uh, you know, situation yeah. or is that really something that's totally on the side of
1: uh, well you I mean you could say if you if if a um, candidate for membership yeah um, say reaches a level of transformation that uh, puts it squarely into the fold of the of the old member states there's no need for differentiation yeah, because it will not be an extra burden on the budget it will not um wields veto power yeah b- because it has no interest in doing so so the the more a new member state transforms in the in in a way as to become like the old member states the less differentiation you need the more it um remains i say on the on the margins uh of of the membership yeah the more likely uh it this needs to be accommodated by some kind of differentiation.
0: Well, thank you very much, Frank, uh, for your views, for your insights. And thank you all for watching. Um, we will be back with further episodes of Europe Chat. Stay tuned.
1: This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission's support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.